Shall we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here together this week and tonight. We pray that as you've promised, you'd speak to us through your word, by your spirit, that we might know you better and love you more, and may all the glory go to you. Amen. I want to talk about things that are glorious. Here's a picture up on your screen. It's not my glorious bald head, those as awesome as that is. Dinner at sunset on a, Fiji, on a Fijian beach celebrating 20 years of marriage. That was pretty glorious. I also managed to surprise Jenny with a ring that she knew nothing about to mark the occasion. That was a pretty glorious effort on my part, may I just say, which she reminds me of. How about the Milky Way at night when you're away from the city lights? You seen that? That's pretty glorious, isn't it? A long black from Excelsior Jones Cafe in Ashfield. Look, it, it might not be quite the Milky Way, but I really like their particular coffees. Or how about this? If you're not impressed by that, you might be impressed by this. Wait for it. Wait. Wait. That's pretty cute and pretty glorious. Yes, that's the dog I drag up the street in its star, yeah. But tonight we're going to talk about the most glorious reality that there is. More glorious than Charlie the Cavoodle. More glorious than dinner at sunset on a Fijian beach, more glorious than the Milky Way or the Himalayas, more glorious than the most sumptuous banquet or extravagant party. We're going to talk about God himself. So let's talk, start by, uh, with the question on page 17. Page 17. How do I know what God is like? This conference is all about experiencing God, but how do I know what God is like? Before we can ask what God is like, though, you do have to ask another question. You have to, have to ask, how can we know what he's like? Where can we get trustworthy information about God? From my own vibe of it, from my own internal sense of what he's like? Maybe from some religious guru, maybe a spiritual experience, maybe some other sort of experience of nature or through a dream, through the internet. This is a really important question. Where can I get trustworthy information about God? The best answer is from God himself. The answer given in the Christian Bible is that the one true living God has taken the initiative and revealed himself to us. He's not left you in the dark trying to work out what he's like for yourself. 
Instead, he's revealed himself climactically in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And we have access to that revelation through the Spirit-inspired testimony about Jesus recorded in the Bible. But there are two important qualifiers on that. First is this. God, the one true living God, is more than what he's revealed to us. The one true living God who has revealed himself in Jesus is beyond our full comprehension, which is as you'd expect. It makes sense that the God who made all of this, including us, that he can be greater than even our minds can fully grasp. That makes sense. And God says repeatedly in the Bible that he is more than we can fully grasp, even with what he has revealed of himself to us. The second important writer, though, is that what God has revealed to himself in the Bible is true and trustworthy. You don't know everything about God, but what he's revealed to you is true. And that leads us to the second answer to our question. We know what God is like because God is in himself as he is towards us. I'll explain what I mean by that. God is in himself as he is towards us. That's part of what it means for God to be a God of truth, which is what he says he is in the Bible. Because God is true, the way he interacts with us, what he reveals of himself as he interacts with us, that is what God is truly like in himself. See, if you know me and you relate to me, hopefully what you learn of me is actually true, but I'm a human being and sometimes I don't tell the truth. Sometimes I don't act even truly to things about myself. And so you could interact with me, but it's not true that always I am as I am towards you. But God is a God of truth. He is in himself as he acts towards us. So when you meet God in Jesus Christ... And in the scriptures that talk about Jesus, you're getting the real deal about God. You're not, you're not getting everything about him, but what you're getting from him is true and trustworthy. God really is in himself as he is towards us. That is a really important truth. So what we want to do tonight is understand what God is like, how we're going to do it, by looking at the way God as Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, looking at the way they interact in the events around Jesus' life and ministry. Because by looking at how the Father, the Son and the Spirit interact in those events, we get an insight into what God is actually like. Because as you see them interact there, you're getting a picture of what God is like in himself. Because he is in himself as he, has, as he is towards us, as, we, as he reveals himself to us. So we're going to swim in some deep waters tonight as we explore what it means for God to be Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They're deep waters and they're glorious. So let's dive in. Section number one there, the Spirit, the Father and Jesus in the Gospel events. Now I've divided this into three sections three sort of periods of time, if you like. First of all, Jesus' earthly life, 
then after his resurrection, and then final glory. So we're going to work through those three sections as we trace through this gospel story. First of all, Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, I'm not going to give you a thorough treatment of each passage here. We're really just looking to get the overall picture of how the Spirit, in particular, is involved and related to Jesus' person and ministry. What we're looking for are the relationships between Jesus, the Spirit, and the Heavenly Father. First of all, then, Jesus' Spirit-enabled conception. The Spirit was intimately involved in Jesus' whole earthly ministry, going right back to his very conception. The first passage there from Luke chapter 1. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Jesus was not just another religious figure of history. Christians believe what the Bible proclaims, that Jesus was both fully human, a baby born from his mother's womb like every single one of us, and that he was fully God. He was born of a virgin, so clearly different to every single one of us. He's holy, marked out as separate and different to the rest of us, by the nature of his conception. How is that even possible, that a woman could find herself pregnant without sex or IVF or some introduction of male sperm? Well, the answer the angel gives is the Holy Spirit. Verse number 35, there in the passage, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. A unique conception to mark out a unique person. Jesus is not just another bloke. His coming into the world was through the direct intervention and action of the Holy Spirit in a thoroughly unique manner. But notice here, there are three who are at work here. There's the Lord God, in verse 32, who's also called the Most High. Then there's Jesus, identified as Son of the Most High and Son of God. And then there's the Holy Spirit, who in verse 35 is identified as the power of the Most High. Notice we've got three related persons, the Most High, the Son of the Most High, and the power of the Most High. Or using other titles in the passage, there's the Lord God, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction here between the three but also a relation and a unity. They're all working together. Let's then move on to look at Jesus' ministry. First of all, at his baptism from Luke chapter 3. Now, when all the people were baptised and when Jesus also was being baptised and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. 
Notice again, there are three related persons involved here. There's the one speaking from heaven and from where the Holy Spirit descends, that's the Father. Then there's Jesus, whom the Father calls his Son. And then there's the Spirit who comes from the Father to Jesus the Son. This coming of the Spirit on Jesus does two things. Like his conception, it marks him out as special. The Holy Spirit doesn't descend on every single person in the form of a dove. But it also empowers Jesus for the ministry God the Father had given him to do. You can see this in the next passage there on your page. Because the very next episode that Luke records is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which begins like this from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Jesus is now full of the Holy Spirit and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Because that's where God's people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament, even though they had God's Spirit amongst them, as we saw this morning, the wilderness was where they gave into temptation and turned away from God. But Jesus, full of the Spirit, does what Israel couldn't do. He withstands temptation and he stays true to God's word and doesn't give in to sin. And straight on after the temptation, Luke continues the next passage there on your page, again from Luke 4. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's the Spirit doing here? The Spirit empowers Jesus for his teaching ministry, for proclaiming the kingdom of God. And on this particular Sabbath day in his hometown of Nazareth, he reads from Isaiah 61 and he makes a most astounding claim. Remember the two shadowy spirit figures we talked about this morning? The Spirit-anointed Messiah and the Spirit-empowered servant? Well, sitting in his hometown synagogue that Sabbath, Jesus makes a big call. He announces himself as one of those promised shadowy spirit figures, the spirit-empowered servant. Because that passage he quotes, Isaiah 61, is one of the servant passages in Isaiah. And Jesus says to him, that shadowy servant of the Lord has arrived. And it's me, right here, right now. In fact, all of these passages that we've looked at so far have pointed to the fact that Jesus is both 
the Spirit-empowered servant and the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Back in Luke 1, the conception passage, the angel told Mary he will be given the throne of his ancestor David. Jesus is the promised Messiah. At Jesus' baptism, the father says, you are my son. That's a quote from Psalm 2 about the promised Messiah. And when the father says, with you I am well pleased, that's a quote from Isaiah 42, one of the promised servant passages in Isaiah. So at his baptism, Jesus is identified by the father as both the spirit-anointed Messiah and the spirit-empowered servant. The consistent quoting of Messiah and servant passages plus the references to the Holy Spirit coming upon him, is meant to help us understand Jesus' identity. He's not just another Middle Eastern bloke, or even just another religious figure. He's the promised Spirit-anointed Messiah, and the Spirit-empowered servant, who stands at the centre of all of God's plans and purposes. But the Spirit didn't just empower Jesus' preaching and teaching. Jesus' miracles were also empowered by the Spirit. It's there in Acts chapter 10, above the diagram on page 18. Luke records Peter's summary about Jesus' ministry. Peter says, That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus' empowerment by the Spirit to do these miraculous healings became part of the very message that spread about him. He was known and proclaimed as a Spirit-anointed, divinely empowered leader, healer, the promised Messiah bringing in the kingdom of God. But it wasn't just his healings and his miracles that were empowered by the Spirit, and here we might be straying into less familiar waters for you. Let's look at the Spirit and Jesus' resurrection. Here's one of the Apostle Paul's summary of the Christian gospel or the Christian message from Romans chapter 1. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says there, Jesus was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. That is, the spirit was the energizing power that raised Jesus from the dead and transformed his mortal, lowly body into an immortal and glorious one. The spirit was active right there in Jesus' resurrection. And finally, the spirit, Jesus' death and the atonement. Jesus tells us that the reason he came was to seek and to save the lost. The climax of Jesus' saving work was his death for the sins of the world and his rising to new eternal life. Those are closely related to each other. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, it's made clear that Jesus' death on the cross was the one and final sacrifice for sins that never needs to be repeated. Whereas the Jewish priests would offer sacrifice after sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem, carrying the blood of the sacrifices into the earthly temple sanctuary, Jesus, by contrast, as the one true high priest raised from the dead, 
He offered the blood from his own death for the sins of the world, not in the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but in the true heavenly temple. Have a look at how Hebrews 9 puts it at the bottom of page 18. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? The reference to Jesus' offering of himself to God through the Spirit might be a way of referring to Jesus' resurrection. Because he was raised from the dead, he is able to make the once-for-all offering of his own blood to God in the heavenly temple. So the work of the Spirit in Jesus' resurrection is critical to the effectiveness of Jesus' atonement for our sins. So how do we pull this section on Jesus' ministry together? You can see the little diagram there on the bottom of page 18. The Father sends the Son to complete the Father's mission through and with the empowerment of the Spirit. The Father sends the Son through and with the Spirit. Let's move on then. What about after Jesus' resurrection and return to the Father in heaven? The traditional name for this is Jesus' heavenly session meaning what Jesus is doing while seated at the right hand of the Father, because the word session just comes from the word for being seated. Now, we saw in talk number one that God had promised to pour out his Spirit into the hearts of all his people. This was a great hope for God's people. They were looking forward to the day when God would fulfill his promise and pour his Spirit into all his people. Before Jesus started his public ministry, John the Baptist had created a considerable stir amongst the Israelites. Have a look at Luke chapter 3 at the top of page 19. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John clearly says, I'm not the guy. I'm not the one who will fulfill those Old Testament promises about the Spirit. I'm just baptizing with water. But the Spirit baptizer is on his way. And then, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus announces to the disciples that that moment of Spirit baptism that John had spoken of, it's now about to take place. Have a look at Acts chapter 1. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And that is what happened, as recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Notice what Peter says on that day. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Jesus has poured out the promised Holy Spirit that he received from the Father. That was a really big deal that Jesus had done that. This is the climax of a huge part of the Bible's story the fulfilment of all of those Old Testament promises. And such a big deal that we're going to come back to that particular moment tomorrow night. But for now, 
As we try to play out the interactions between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we have a little problem. Have a look at the verses printed on the bottom half of page 19. Who exactly gives us the Spirit? See, from John 14 there on your page, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth. Or again from John 14, I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything. So those verses clearly say the Father is the one sending the Spirit. But look then at John 16 verse 7. Jesus said, if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go... I will send him to you. Or again in John 15 verse 26, Jesus says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father. So is Jesus a bit confused here? Who exactly is sending the Spirit? Is it Jesus, the Son, or is it the Father? Well, actually they fit together. It seems when you put all of those passages together, it seems the Spirit is sent from the Father, but He's sent from the Father at the request of and in the name of the Son. So the Spirit comes from the Father through the Son. But it's also worth asking at the top of page 20, exactly whose Spirit is it? So read through Romans 8 there on your page. See if you can identify whose spirit it is. So this is where you get a pen and you try to underline or circle. Every, as I go through, through, every time that the spirit is identified, try and work out exactly whose spirit it is. Let me read from Romans 8 verse 9. Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. Do you notice there it gets a bit confusing? It's the Spirit of God, and then it's the Spirit of Christ, and then it's actually just said, if Christ is in you, and then it's the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. That would be the Father, so the Spirit of the Father. It's, whose Spirit is this? Well, the answer is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. There's a profound unity here. So much so that when the Spirit is in you, Christ can be said to be in you. So to summarise all of that into a diagram, the Father sends the Spirit through the Son. But that's not all. Let's move on to the third section here. The story doesn't stop at the pouring out of the Spirit on the followers of Jesus. The Bible gives us an insight into both what the Spirit does in the life of the believer and the greater goal that God has in mind. First of all, note here, the Spirit 
glorifies the Son. Have a look at John 16 there on your page. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's role is to glorify Jesus, the Son. That's a really important point, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But notice also the unity here between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All that the Father has, he gives to the Son, and all that the Son has, the Spirit takes and declares to the disciples. There's distinction between them as Father, Son, and Spirit, but great unity in purpose. But also, if the Spirit is glorifying the Son, the Son's glory is for the glory of the Father. Have a look at John 17, verse 1, there on your page. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' ultimate goal is not his own glory. It's to bring glory to the Father. Just as the Spirit is focused on bringing glory to Jesus, Jesus is focused on bringing glory to the Father. In fact, ultimately, Jesus will hand everything back to the Father. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 28 teaches us. Paul writes, When all things are subjected to, to him, that is to Jesus the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him that is to God the Father, so that God may be all in all. The great goal or the great end of the ministry of the Spirit and of Jesus is to hand everything over to the Father and to see the Father glorified. And so we have the little diagram at the bottom of page 20. But the summary statement got a bit mixed up in the printing, actually. You're going to need to fix it up. The summary, what is the summary meant to say? The summary should say, the Father is glorified by the Son and the Spirit. The Father is glorified by the Son and the Spirit. Now, I've just pushed at you a whole lot of Bible truth about the relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit. Having got all of that out there, now we want to try to draw it together. What then is God like, and why does it matter? Let's talk about why it matters first. If God exists, and I know that there's some of you here who are not yet convinced of that truth, but if God exists, and if God is who the Christian Bible says he is, then he is ultimate reality. Everything else that exists is real, but it's dependent upon him, including you and me, our existence. So to be out of touch with who God is as ultimate reality, to not know him, is a very, very blinkered, blindfolded existence. It's like living life with a massive blind spot right in the middle of your field of vision. 
And when you can't see what's right in front of you, you get a very skewed picture of everything. That's why it matters to know what God is really like. Because he's at the centre of everything. But the second reason it matters takes us back to where we started at talk one. Our longing to be satisfied. God has revealed himself to us for a purpose. Not just so that you might have interesting discussions about the nature of God. Not to just to fill your mind with interesting facts or ideas. No, the reason the one true living God has revealed himself is so that we might know him and be in a relationship with him through Jesus and the spirit that Jesus has poured out from the Father. To ignore what he has revealed about himself is not just to be ignorant, it's actually to pass up on the opportunity to know the joy and the peace and the meaning and the hope that comes from the Spirit and is secured by Jesus. It's to pass up the opportunity for real satisfaction through a real relationship with the one true living God who is Father, Son and Spirit. Tom Smale explains at the top of page 21, he says... The gospel is about knowing God as he is. The gospel offers us not just knowledge of our own situation and of God's gracious and abundant provision for us, but a knowledge of God himself. It's not a matter of us storming the heavens to invade his secrets. Rather, he himself has come into our human world and shown himself to us and invited us to know him as he eternally is. So what then is God like? Well, what have we seen in the interactions of Father, Son, and Spirit in these gospel events? What we've seen is a distinction in persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Father and the Son are not the Spirit. They are all distinct from one another. You can't substitute one for the other. It wasn't the Father or the Spirit who was incarnate and died for your sins. It was the Son. And it wasn't the Son who's poured out into your heart as a believer. It's the Spirit. They are distinct and not interchangeable. But there's also a profound unity We've seen a unity of purpose. Father, Son and Spirit all work to the same goal, even with distinct roles. More fundamentally, there is a unity of being between the Father, the Son and the Spirit. The Bible is very clear that there is only one God, not three gods. There's one God in three persons. Because there's only one God, if the Spirit is in you, yes, Christ is in you. Because God is one, there's also then a unity in action. You can never just have one person of the Trinity working alone while the other two are just having a bit of a holiday. God is one. They cannot be separated. The Father, Son and Spirit are, are distinct but never separate. They always act together because God is one. 
whether that's in revelation or salvation or sanctification or glorification, Father, Son and Spirit are united in action. So how do we hold together this distinction of persons but profound unity in purpose and being and action? Well, this is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons, that that is how God has revealed himself to be. God is in himself as he is towards us. And it might be confusing for us at times, but if that's who God is, then that's who he is. This understanding of who God is is an attempt to synthesize together what God has revealed about himself in Jesus and through the scriptures. You can see it's summarized simply there in the boxes on your outline. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But there's not three gods, there's only one God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Father and the Son is not the Spirit. There's distinction, but a profound, mind-bending unity. It was a very significant achievement of the early Christians to put the biblical material together into what we call this understanding of God as Trinity. To answer the most basic and fundamental of questions, really, what is the one true living God like? It took quite a long time for consensus to be reached on those divine relationships and how best to express them, to articulate them. You can see part of their conclusions there on your page from the Nicene Creed of 381 AD. This is part of the creed that they wrote. They said, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us human beings and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. They're trying to capture not just the unity and distinction, they're trying to capture the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the particular relation between the Father and the Son is that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, begetting is not a word, and I didn't say baguette. It's not like the eating of baguettes. Baguetting, no, begetting. Begetting is not a word we use very often anymore. But begetting is what fathers do. They beget children. You have children. But God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That is... See, my children were all begotten at particular points in time, particular, like day, particular days in human history. This child was begotten at this particular point. That's when they were born into the world. This child was begotten. But God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. 
There was never a moment of begetting. And there certainly was never a time when the father didn't have the son. No, eternally begotten is them stretching the very concept of begetting to try to capture the eternal nature of the father-son relationship. There has always been father and son, and the son has always been the son of the father, and the father has always been the father of the son. Eternally begotten. The creed then moves on to the spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. There's an emphasis here on the divinity of the Holy Spirit, that He is also like the Son, truly God. He is, like the Son, Lord. He is to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son because He is fully God. There is only one God. But the relationship between the Father and the Spirit is different to the relationship between the Father and the Son. With the Spirit, it's not begottenness. It's proceeding. It's picking up on the language we saw earlier in John 14 of the Father sending the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds as the Spirit, the breath, the ruach. He proceeds. Literally, He proceeds. He's the breath, the wind that proceeds from the Father. But that actually uh, brings us to a particular controversy in church history, the filioque. Uh, You notice that in brackets there it says, after who proceeds from the Father, then comes the square brackets, and the Son, or to say that in Latin, filioque. Now, as represented on the little diagram there, the original creed of 381 just had who proceeds from the Father. But a massive split happened around 1000 AD between the Eastern churches, what we know as the Orthodox churches, the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, They maintain the original creed, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, and the so-called Western churches, which at that time was the Roman Catholic Church, but out of which later came Protestant churches, who added that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. And they had a massive theological fight over whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father or whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now you go, I don't care, I don't really care. But this was a huge deal, so much so that the, the global church split. And it's remained split ever since. You've still got the Eastern churches and the Western churches who still disagree over this particular point. Who's right? Well, you can see why the Western churches added who proceeded from the Father and the Son The passages we looked at earlier certainly teach that Jesus had a role in sending the Spirit. But then even there we saw it's the Father and the Son don't have the same role, do they, in sending of the Spirit. The Son sends the Spirit from the Father. So you can sort of see the Eastern Church's objection to what the Western Church has added. If you misunderstand the addition, it suggests that the Father and the Son might have the same role 
rather than respecting their distinct roles in the sending of the Spirit. Now, these are just, this is just a human creed, right? It's put together by fallible human beings. And if you and I were to write it, I doubt it would be you know, much better. It would probably be much worse. Even under the guidance of God's Spirit and with the help of His Word. But I think that the Western filioque cause probably is better because it at least recognises the role that the Son has in the sending of the Spirit from the Father. So there's a little introduction to what God is like as Father, Son and Spirit. The deep and glorious waters of God as Trinity. This is who the one true living God has revealed himself to be. And if your mind's feeling a bit confused, good. If you think, oh yeah, that's all crying, I've got all that sorted, then you haven't been listening. This is hard, deep stuff. But it's who God has revealed himself to be. And it's amazing. And he's done it because he wants you to have a relationship with him. This astounding, one true living God, Father, Son and Spirit. But we're going to finish tonight by thinking through then some of the important implications of what we've just looked at for our understanding of the Spirit. First of all, the Spirit is distinct, but never separate from the Father and the Son. There are two mistakes Christians fall into when they don't get this right. Mistake number one, over-separating the Spirit and Jesus. See, since God is one, the Spirit never acts separately to the Father and the Son. They are always operating together. But people often over-separate Jesus and the Spirit in particular. Now, these are caricatures that I'm going to paint here. My intention is to offend everybody. <laughs> on the left, on your diagram there, you've got the word peeps. These people are fully committed to Jesus as Lord. They love the Bible as the Word of God, but the Spirit doesn't seem to get much of a look in. In fact, they're deeply suspicious of any talk about the Spirit as an active agent in their lives or anyone else's, except when it comes to someone becoming a Christian. Apart from his work, though, in conversion, they're not very comfortable talking about what the Spirit as an active person in our life might be doing. Their default position is scepticism when it comes to tongues. They think prophecy is probably not necessary today and similarly for words of knowledge or healing. The person and work of the Spirit is not really understood, not really appreciated, and almost certainly never looked for. The danger with word peeps is that they end up cold and cerebral. They can be, there can be less warmth, maybe no affections in their faith. And tragically, they can lack the comfort and encouragement that we're meant to draw from Jesus' own teaching about the Spirit and His work in our lives. Without understanding the Spirit, the Christian life is also in danger of becoming one of all my effort. Without understanding that it's the Spirit working in you, it's really just about you trying harder rather than God's gracious work in my life. 
And you can lose the hope that Jesus wants us to have because we've neglected to recognise the Spirit's work in our lives. The danger with word peeps is they end up hard, intellectual, with a works-based confidence in their own faith. And then on the right, you've got the Spirit crew. Now, there are several different types of Spirit crew. First, there is the theologically liberal Spirit crew, who see in all the world's religions the working of the divine spirit. And Jesus is just one way to access that truth. Let me give you a concrete example. More than 20 years ago now, there was a World Council of Churches meeting in Canberra. Delegates from churches came from all around the world to Canberra. The theme for the gathering 20 years ago was the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the keynote speakers from Korea said this in her talk. I'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. I'm sorry it's small, but you'll get it. I'll read it out to you. She said, In my tradition, people who were killed or died unjustly became wandering spirits, the Han-ridden spirits. They are all over the place seeking to change to make the wrong right. Therefore, the living people's responsibility is to listen to the voices of the harm-ridden spirits and to participate in the spirit's work of making the wrong right. These harm-ridden spirits in our people's history have been agents through whom the Holy Spirit has spoken her compassion and wisdom for life. Without hearing the cries of these spirits, we cannot hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I hope the presence of all our ancestors' spirits here with us shall not make you uncomfortable. For us, they are the icons of the Holy Spirit who became tangible and visible to us. Because of them, we can feel, touch and taste the concrete bodily historical presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The World Council of Churches. Her claim is that the Holy Spirit is working in these other religious traditions. In fact, that these other spirits are the voice of the Holy Spirit and they make the Holy Spirit tangible and visible to us. They are the concrete bodily historical presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what she's done there? She's replaced Jesus with the spirits of her ancestors. Jesus is not the concrete bodily historical presence of the Holy Spirit. The Han spirits are. Jesus is not the voice of the Spirit. The Han spirits are. She separated the Spirit from the Word. It's a denial that God is one, that the Spirit and the Word are never separate. It's not Christian. There's another type of spirit crew that are also in danger of over-separating the spirit and the word. Very different to that one. This is an extreme Pentecostalism where all the focus is on the spirit with no or little connection to Jesus. Some Pentecostalism teaches a second baptism in the spirit after coming to faith in Jesus. 
Jesus and the Spirit are effectively treated as two separate experiences. Can you see with an understanding of God as Trinity why that's a bit of a problem? And as we'll see later in the week, I don't believe there's any authentic biblical basis for that teaching, that there's a second baptism in the Spirit. It's also in danger of forgetting that the Spirit and the Son always come together because God is one. We can get all hyped up on the Spirit supposedly doing this or doing that, moving powerfully here, miraculously intervening here. But if it's not connected to the Word, to the person of Jesus and His teaching as recorded in the Spirit's book in the Bible, then it's quite likely that we're actually veering away from what the Spirit is really doing and what the Spirit's really interested in, and we're straying instead into spiritual, so-called spiritual highs and practices of our own imagination, or maybe even worse. What we need to remember is that the Spirit and the Word are always together. Notice how Zechariah 7 verse 12 puts it there on your page. Israel made their hearts adamant in order not to hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. The words that the Lord had sent by His Spirit. The words that the Lord had sent by His Spirit. You see, word always comes through the Spirit. Spirit always speaks through the Word. We have to make sure that we don't try to prize apart what is actually welded together in the very being of God. Tom Smale counsels, Helpfully here, I think, he says, a one-sided absorption in dramatic spiritual experiences can easily obscure the fact that the purpose of the Spirit's coming is to relate us to the Father and the Son. Against that danger, a good Trinitarian theology can act as a necessary and valuable corrective. If the danger with word peeps is that they can end up hard and intellectual and with a works-based confidence in their own faith, the danger with the spirit crew is that they end up unmoored from God's revelation of himself in Jesus and the Bible. They can end up like a rowboat that's lost its moorings to land. They end up just swept around in a stormy swell of every crazy spiritual idea, and they're in danger, actually, of losing Jesus himself. So as we talk about the spirit this week... And in fact, beyond this week, whenever you are thinking about the Holy Spirit, you have to remember God is Trinity. Because when you're talking about the Holy Spirit, you're talking about God Himself. You need to remember who He is, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct but never separate from each other, one God in three persons. Now, I've already talked a little bit there about underappreciating the Spirit's distinct role for some of the word peeps. We're going to talk more about that later in the week. So jump down to the bottom of page 22 and we'll finish by looking at the second important implication from what we've looked at tonight, the Spirit's fundamentally self-effacing work. The Spirit glorifies another. Graham Cole wrote a really helpful book on the Spirit called He Who Gives Life and we read it as our Howie book club every year. The Howies get together with me And we read a book together in preparation for annual conference. And we read Graham Cole's book. It's an excellent book. Highly recommend it. He Who Gives Life. He says this. He says, Christology, the study of Jesus, is at the centre, not 
Pneumatology. Remember, pneuma, New Testament word for the Spirit. Paradoxically, in a world of self-promotion, the magnificence of the Spirit lies not in self-display, but in self I can never say this word right. Abnegation. That is self-denial. The magnificence of the Spirit lies in this self-effacement or divine selflessness. You get that? The glory of the Spirit is that he's trying to bring glory to somebody else, to the Son. He's self-effacing. A selflessness within God himself. As the Father and the Son, as the Spirit and the Son seek to glorify the Father. And because the Spirit is drawing our attention to Jesus, he says, for this reason, believers are rightly called Christians, not Numians. We're focused on Christ. Tom Smale again. He says, there is a way of concentrating upon the Holy Spirit that is grieving to the Spirit. Because he has not come to draw our attention to himself, but to forge our relationship to the Father and the Son. A spirit who offers us an experience of himself and his gifts as the central focus of our Christian lives is not the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. So there's actually a real danger in us holding a conference focusing on the Holy Spirit. We could actually end up doing the very thing that the Spirit does not want us to do. The Spirit wants us to focus on Jesus. So I know as I've been trying to put these talks together, I've had that as a real concern of mine. How will each talk bring glory to Jesus? Because that's what the Spirit wants all of us to do. Give glory to Jesus as he gives glory to his Father. But it's not just about having the focus on Jesus. As Tom Smale said in an earlier quote, the purpose of the Spirit's coming is to relate us to the Father and the Son. And that's what we're going to look at tomorrow night. So I'm just going to give you a moment now to write down something of what you've learned tonight, anything that struck you, maybe a question or a thought, and maybe jot down your response. I'll give you a moment, and then I'll lead in prayer using the words of this old hymn. Father of heaven, whose love profound a ransom for our souls has found. Before your throne, we sinners bend. To us, your pardoning love extend. Almighty Son, incarnate Word, our prophet, priest, redeemer, Lord, before your throne, we sinners bend. To us, your saving grace extend. Eternal Spirit, by whose breath the soul is raised from sin and death, before your throne we sinners bend, to us your quickening power extend. Almighty Father, Spirit, Son, mysterious Godhead three in one, before your throne we sinners bend, grace, pardon, life to us extend. We pray it in your great and glorious name, Father, Son and Spirit. Amen.